Hey everyone, and welcome to the September edition of the Open System Podcast. Excited for the start of the school year and have been hearing great stories about family engagement and open system work all over the country. I just came back from the Economist Open Futures Conference in New York City, where there was a global conversation on the role of not only just open systems, but open societies, open markets, open borders, and really taking the open frame to a different level, but more on that to come. So exciting conversations around, and we're bringing a really great conversation to you all today with Brian Eschbacher, who is a old colleague and friend of mine from Denver Public Schools, who is an expert on the issues of choice, access, and planning for public school systems. He led the choice and planning team for many years at Denver Public Schools, and now gets to do that work nationally. And we live in a world where issues of choice in education, of access in education, of who gets to have choice and what does it mean to have choice are politically really big hot button issues. And we spend a lot of time in this podcast interrogating those concepts, thinking through them in a bunch of different directions, and really trying to put families and communities and their their perspectives on the system front and center. So want to just say thanks to Brian for being a part of this conversation and really think everyone's going to really enjoy the conversation in particular. I want to hope people stay to the end where we had a conversation about what would happen if the choice system in Denver or in some of these places around the country um, stopped like some many advocates want. And we talk a little bit about what would the collateral consequences of something like that be. So stay around for the whole conversation. Uh, let us know what you think and Enjoy Brian Eschbacher. Brian, it's great to have you today. Thank you for, for having me. Uh, Brian, let's start with how have you found yourself in education? Uh, why do you stay in education now? Tell, uh, us, tell us about your story. Yeah, the origin story. I grew up on Long Island, just outside New York City. And I think for the first half of my career, I was a private sector guy. Um, I studied business and undergrad at Penn State. I have an MBA from Indiana University. Um, but I graduated during the Great Recession, and so I found myself with multiple months off before I went back to being a management consultant. And so I went to work as a volunteer at a charter network, um, Chicago International Charter Schools, uh, on the west and south side of Chicago. And I think that was the first time I was really exposed to generational poverty in parts of Chicago. And I was also exposed to the passion that people were bringing towards trying to solve it. And I saw that they needed more people to come help them. And so um, I stayed at Deloitte for a few more years, but I really just had this um, burning desire to make a difference on this issue. I think education is the most important thing we can do to help reverse those generational situations. Um, and so it inspired me to walk away from a great career and follow my passion. Um, and so I joined the Broad Residency, which had an opening in Denver. So I moved my wife and I to Denver. We had really never been here before. And I ended up staying at DPS for seven years until I left this summer. Well, congratulations on seven years at DPS. That's uh, pretty incredible. As someone who stayed for three years myself and thought it was a pretty incredible experience, I just know that the impact you had was pretty significant. So let's talk about that impact. What's your theory of action? Um, you know, what was the work that you were primarily responsible for at DPS, and uh, why do you think it was consequential in the system? So I led two teams at DPS. I led the school choice team and the portfolio planning team. And we had uh, different theories of action for each team, but they coalesced together, and I think that was key to our impact. Um, I, I think on the choice side, we actually had an opportunity to take a step back this time last year and evaluate what is our theory of action. I think we were about five or six years into having unified enrollment in Denver, but now we were at a place where we were introducing strategies that didn't necessarily have a cohesive whole to them. And so Denver luckily has a North Star of great schools in every neighborhood that is in their Denver plan. And so it was easy for us to align off of that. And so for choice, we want it to be fair and easy. And so keeping it you know, simple with an explanation of like that. And both of those closely align with equity. And so we put families and equity as our North Star. And so the goal would be to help minimize the advantages that a family with more capital, whether it's financial capital or social capital, we want to minimize the advantages that they have in enrollment versus families with less capital. 
And so as we're coming up with different strategies on how to make this fair for families and how to make this easy for families, that was our North Star to work towards. At the same time, we had the portfolio planning team. Um, several years ago, we were two separate teams and then we brought them together under me because we saw the advantages that we'd have uh, with those folks working together. And the planning team at DPS is the forward-looking team that is trying to shape what the family of schools needs to look like to support the rapid enrollment growth of the district. And so over the last 10 years, the district has grown by about 25% or 20,000 students. And that's at a time when most urban districts around the country are shrinking. And so it was, a, it was a fun problem, it was a good problem to work on, was building new schools all over town to support this growth of families moving back into the city with kids, or people not moving to the burbs with kids, and then people sending their kids to Denver as opposed to private schools or neighboring districts. Um, and so the vision for planning was to ensure a great school in every neighborhood, uh, and it aligned closely on the choice side um, by helping see from the data lens how to adapt the family of schools to maximize the number of students in their best fit school. And so I think we'll you know, hopefully talk more about what that might look sure. like to you know, be able to look at, at data patterns and then adapt that family of schools to, to help those students out. Well, I think what you just described there, I think, is one of the, the, the most interesting things I learned when I first came to DPS, is there's this kind of natural cadence to the year of, in the fall, doing the landscape analysis of the planning and then doing the choice process. And so you're almost kind of uh, engaging in a kind of thoughtful reflection of where the situation in the schools are at and then where the system needs to move from there. And that's your team was holding both of those pieces. Yeah, and I think that was key is that we, we had... A, a structure in place where we were able to take the data of where students actually end up in the fall and then incorporate that into the choice system and the call for new schools that happens in the spring. And so we had these good feedback loops in place that we weren't just you know, getting data for data's sake, we were acting on it in a, in a tight way um, that I think had you know, some transparency and some logic behind it. Yeah. So I want to talk in a second about um, where this has really gone well and where it's not gone well. But I'd like let, let's just take a moment to talk about kind of what what a revolutionary thing this is in education that a, that an education system would do this type of planning and then do this type of choice work to make sure that uh, you're doing this equity work around making sure that people get to go to the schools they want to go to. You know, you've had a chance to travel the country now and do this work around the country. I mean, how revolutionary of an idea is this? I mean, how many districts, like give us a sense of percentage-wise of districts, who, who's doing this? Yeah, I think Denver had a, a good situation where we were able to learn from the lessons of New York City, who was first in terms of this kind of unified enrollment space. Yeah. They uh, have a very big high school application process that was very messy for a long time and the work of Dr. Al Roth that then led to him winning the Nobel Prize in economics was on the matching process that is similar to um, the med school matching process or even the kidney matching process. It's all based on the same principle. So we were fortunate that they started in this space and we were able to build off of that. And then there's been several other cities that have come across as well with New Orleans, uh, Washington DC, Indianapolis, um, Newark, Camden, and New Jersey. And so now we have a few different uh, cities that are coming down this path, which is really exciting, where they're now able to make the experience easier for families, make it more fair, uh, and then start to use the data to figure out what to do next for a city. Yeah. Sometimes that's for a city that's growing a lot, which has been Denver's experience, it's been New Orleans' experience after Katrina, it's Washington DC's experience. So that's really exciting where you're able to help more intelligently grow and in other places, it might be where a city is shrinking, which unfortunately is a bunch of cities around the country, but you want to shrink more gracefully. You want to have a soft landing, and by using this enrollment data, you're able to do it in a more thoughtful manner. And what you're talking about is using more precision versus blunt instruments, and that you're able to do that more graceful planning around like, okay, who's going where? What schools do we need to shift capacity at versus reduce at? And I think that a lot of folks in education who, or who have participate in education as students or family members often aren't able to zoom out to the whole city level and see the complex interdynamics of population growth and trends and that was kind of what you guys were trying to get at. 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. We, we try to combine multiple data points together for a neighborhood. Yeah. You don't just want to see where kids do go to school. You also want to see where they wanted to go to school. Oh, interesting. Because you want to see are there waitlists or are kids in essence getting their fourth or fifth choice where they're not going to be as excited about. You also want to incorporate housing information, birth rate information, um, school performance information. You're trying to push together multiple data points for a neighborhood so you come up with the best possible insights of what we should be doing next. So where has this gone really well um, and where has it been less successful in your mind? I think it's gone well in breaking down the importance of zip codes. And that's something I'm really proud about where in most places around the country and unfortunately where I grew up as well, the, the zip code that you live in often dictates the quality of education that you're going to be going to. And I think where we've done well is break down that linkage. Um, and I think it's good that we've done it in different parts of the city in Denver. We did it in some parts that were more affluent. Um, we did it in some parts of the city that were less affluent. And, and so when we're able to break down that importance of zip code and able to get students into a school that is more uh, of interest to them, whether it's a Montessori school or a dual language school or a STEM school or an art school, by being able to get kids into schools that interest them, I believe that they're going to be better off because of it, um, and hopefully the system will be better off as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about where it's uh, where it struggled? Yeah, it struggled. Um, I, I think one of the things we're realizing is you need to have some considerations in place to help the market work. Um, otherwise, it may not work the way you want it to. And so, an example of that unfortunately could be segregation. If you let the market be completely open, you have opportunities where when a neighborhood is changing, um, you know, when the housing market is changing in a given neighborhood, you may have different families of different ethnicities and races moving in, but they're going to resegregate themselves um, into different schools. And so that's something to be really cognizant of when you're introducing new schools that they're intended to serve the entire neighborhood, not just certain students in the neighborhood. And so you, you want to just be as thoughtful as possible about the connections between neighborhoods and schools. Yeah. And you guys put guardrails in like enrollment zones and different things that tried to help mitigate some of that stuff, right? Yeah. I think we got smarter over time. Yeah. Um, you know, we're seven years in now, Denver's seven years in. And I think the more data you get back, the more you can see what's happening and why, and then have conversations with school leaders and parent organizations and, and get feedback from them on, you know, why, here's the problem statement we're seeing, help us think through different solutions for it. So um, let's talk, you brought up markets. I think this is a good segue to go into markets. Um, where, you know, I think sometimes people struggle with the concept of markets and education. I also think we live in a time and place where markets are synonymous with crashes, um, with soaring CEO uh, salaries, income inequality. So let's talk about where, where, like, where the analogy of markets is really strong in education or in public spaces and where is it, uh, where is it not as strong? Sure. I think one of the things that excited me about working on school choice was that it introduces an element of competition into a monopolistic system. And so where I grew up, you lived on a certain street, you went to this school, and if you didn't like it, too bad. You either had to move or your family had to try to go to private school. Um, But that's just not a fair marketplace when only certain people are able to engage on that. And so I've seen, I've heard analogies that um, schools are like pizza parlors and you know, Darwinism will take over and that, you know, the weak will, will die off and the strong will survive and that's a good thing. Um, but that, that just doesn't work. A pizza place could change on a Tuesday. They could go out of business on a Tuesday and society will be fine. You can go to the one down the street. If, if round table pizza disappears, like no one's freaking out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a New Yorker, so Denver pizza, could, yeah. <laughs> most of it could disappear and we would be fine. But schools don't close that quickly. Schools can take years to to wind down, and you could have hundreds of students that are in there. Lagging, yeah. And, and, and so you have the emotional collateral damage that would happen with a closure, and that's what we've seen in other cities, that if you don't do it really thoughtfully, and you don't have a much better school for students to go to, then the, the social-emotional challenges and the academic challenges could be overwhelmingly hard to recover for a student. So that, that's a place where I think the market analogies um, don't work as well. There's something that has resonated better with me, and that's comparing it to rural hospitals. Um, rural hospitals are public good. 
um, that we need to have, right? You could go, you could be 50 miles from another hospital. And so if one went under, um, that would be, you know, traumatic to, a, you know, a, several communities. Um, and so a challenge with that is, is market viability. And so this is a place where uh, in Denver, we try to have more market considerations than some other places. And so an example of that is, if you have 10 different charter authorizers in an area, and all 10 are authorizing different schools to serve a given neighborhood, you may not have enough students in that area mm. that can fill those schools, even the good ones. And so this is you know, kind of a sociological principle like the tragedy of the commons or a circular firing squad where you're flooding a market with supply and you think the market will be efficient enough to then just work it out and that the strong will survive and the weak will die off. But what we've seen uh, from my time in Denver is we have neighborhoods where the lowest performing schools are getting just as many students as the high performing schools, but neither of them are getting nearly enough students that they are viable. And so when you're talking about a market that is emotionally driven, which is their you know, your child's education, it, the market is not going to be as efficient as possible. So there's no doubt that I don't believe monopolies serve their customers as well as a competitive market does. At that same time, I've now learned over the last seven years that you need to have some market considerations in place that are going to allow it to succeed as a whole. So let's talk about uh, monopolies for a second, too, because I also think that's something for a lot of folks that they don't really think about in the public space. I think that we... Well, first off, we fought a lot of historical battles in the past to take down private monopolies. That seems to have gone by the wayside. I think there's a huge amount of discussion right now about a major private monopolies that have been aggregating in our private space in our country, whether that's tech monopolies or energy monopolies or whatever it is. I think people are saying this is a problem now. Um, and one of the things we often hear from folks on the left is that um, what we need is more public monopolies. We need more state control. We need more centralized planning of kind of, oh, this is the one school system, this is the one healthcare system, this is the one thing. And I think what, what I hear you saying is that you wanna create, and I think this is the power of the Denver model in some ways, is um, competition within the public sphere. And I think that's something that people don't always kind of weigh out and think through. And it's you know, sometimes similar to some of the marketplaces that have been built, built up for healthcare, and again, some have thrived and some have struggled. Um, public monopolies are just as bad as private monopolies because it just it also restricts choice and access for families and parents, right? Yeah, I, I agree. I think that that's been something I felt strongly about over the past few years. And I think it's important to remember that for decades and decades, it has been a public monopoly with an asterisk that the families who are most affluent continue to get their ability to opt out of it, whether it is private school or whether it's the real estate market. And so a concern I had is that it's a public monopoly only for people who couldn't opt out of yep. the system, which I think is very, very dangerous in terms of, of something that is as important as K-12 education. And it exacerbates the inequities of, of that, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this this gets into the, you know, the, the ability to exit a market versus just, you know, voice your frustration yeah. with the market that if only the affluent families can exit, well, then the monopoly is just going to continue to exist and it's not going to get better. And I think, you know, some folks have the nostalgia that public education was so great 50 years ago. I don't think it was, um, but now we're at a place where uh, if we continue to let the monopoly exist, then we shouldn't be surprised what the outcomes are going to continue to be. That's a good bridge into exit voice and loyalty, um, which is something I know you and I had a dialogue about when we were at DPS together. And we were you were leading a lot of kind of how the system could be responsive around exit and voice and loyalty. And I was kind of on the family side. I had a conversation with a parent uh, recently that was really anti-choice. And I was trying to drill down into like what was her dilemma around choice. And I came to understand that we both were concerned about exit. She was concerned about exit of rich families from challenging schools that drains the social capital of that school and community. And that essentially it'll create more segregation because rich families will be able to get out. And that was a pretty like eye-opening thing for me is that like that was her concern about choice. But I presented, you know, my dilemma around it is that I want parents and families to be able to pick, be able to leave schools that aren't serving them well. And I think that she had never thought about choice in that context. I think she was like, oh, I see the dilemma from my end of the spectrum. And I think I've been really also very concerned about, okay, let's make sure, you know, in some ways, like let's give people, let's, let's build a choice system almost to 
an ability that's maybe farther of parents and families being able to get out of schools that aren't serving them well, that aren't meeting their individual needs. Where is, how do you think about exit voice and loyalty? And again, let's talk about like, where is the DPS system or Denver system really strong or challenging in these, in these areas? I think when we think of choice systems around the country in the cities that I mentioned before, and including in Denver, you want to empower all families to be a player in the system, yeah. right? When you go back to, you know, the, the magnet structures that exist in some cities where they're all based on testing and you have to, you know, know somebody to get in and, and those types of games, it's clearly designed for affluent families. Um, I was proud to, you know, be part of a system that put all families at the forefront of our decision making. And I think that's what's so important about what you just said, that if there is a situation where some families need to get out, we wanna make sure that a family with less capital is able to get out at the same rate as a family with more capital. I don't believe in holding people hostage because you think that that is gonna make the situation better. Just Um, give it five years. Just give it five years for the system turnaround. That could could be a family's whole tenure in elementary school. Yeah, I mean, when you think of like a high school, the amount of time it could take a turnaround, the child could have missed their entire high school experience. The, the, The battleships just are not able to turn fast enough in this space to to be able to just hold families hostage in that. And so that's where I think the exit that's side, the exit component. yeah, meaning giving families the ability to act and get out is yeah. so important with it. Yeah. Otherwise, that, that, that family member is right. I think one of the challenges is that, that if, if people don't know the situation, if you're not being transparent about the situation and you don't help them get out, you don't like share the details of what a transfer rules could look like, if you don't have any transportation in place, um, if, if you don't give them any tools to help them act out, uh, to opt out, well, then we shouldn't be surprised that the more affluent families will leave and that the less affluent families may stay. So I'm going to, before we go to voice and uh, the problems of loyalty, one of the things I thought was pretty incredible about your team in the past few years, and I think one of the reasons why I think this is a, a, when we'll get to us kind of digging into the open system a little bit more later, but you know, there's this misperception, I think, in the Denver system and especially around choice that low-income families don't access it, that families that speak other language don't access it. But this is, I think, one one of the powers of the team you led and the work that was under Tom Bosberg was a significant prioritization of making sure that families of low-income backgrounds and who spoke other languages rather than English were accessing choice at near rates to their uh, to their high-income peers. And maybe you could tell a little bit about like how you guys made that push. What was what were the barriers to get there? That sort of thing. Yeah, and that was definitely the starting point. Is um, for for. Um, for community members who don't believe in choice, they say it's only for affluent families. Well, the first thing is we had to clearly articulate that our passion and our North Star was engaging all families. Yeah. And so I think we did a good job of that a year ago, and we probably should have been more explicit about it sooner. Um, and so we started with that North Star, that we want all families to participate and all families to pick a great school for their child, whether it's the one across the street or whether it's the one across town. We want all families to be able to participate. And so we then started to lay out what does that look like in all of our strategies. And so um, one is through staffing, right? Our team is majority Spanish speaking and making sure that when a family walks in or calls that they have a person that can speak their native language. We have translation services that help with another set of languages that may not be as common, but that there are still a lot of families in Denver that speak that. So some of this is staffing and all the printed materials that go out being in 10 languages. We have mobile apps um, that work on smartphones, which a lot of families have, um, and making sure those are in multiple languages as well. Um, Some of this was on what are the neighborhoods where families don't have transportation access? They don't have private transportation? Well, let's have shuttle systems, uh, yellow bus shuttle systems in those areas to connect families with more schools. I don't want to be running buses all over town because they're really expensive and we're not a, a school district is not a transportation company. Um, but for the neighborhoods that are targeted most um, in terms of needing transportation, you know, being able to do those types of things. Um, we put priorities in the system itself, in the lottery system, to help students who qualify for free and reduced lunch, to give them a boost. That's at about 30 of the 40 most affluent schools in the city. So that's another way that we want to help um, help consider all families in the strategies that we're doing. Um, I think there's opportunities to engage grassroots organizations to help families in all neighborhoods. I think it's especially important in 2018 when a school district is technically government employees and we want to make sure that all families feel comfortable talking to a person about their child's education and they may not have to worry about 
any considerations with documentation. So if they have a trusted community partner who's talking with them, um, that they'll be more willing to engage in the process. So it, it's starting with that North Star and then aligning all of your um, all of your strategies against that to make sure that you are boosting them. And then having the data as a feedback loop to see where you're doing well and where you're not. It's definitely been a growth for us that in some parts of town we've done very well with participation and other ones have lagged. And so it's about you know reassessing why did this not go as well? Why are fifth graders at a certain school not participating? Can we get the teachers to help us? Can we get the secretaries to help us? You know, trying to figure out the different actors to, to help work with families to influence it. But you mentioned, you know, on the data side, we're really proud that we had an external audit a few years ago and the rate of our our non-English speaking families was higher in terms of participation than our English speaking families. Oh, wow. it's, it's like an, it's like a reverse achievement gap on yeah. that, right? And 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 I think it's a tribute to just the 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 amount of effort that we poured into our non-native English speaking families and um, and helping meet them where they're at and get them to engage in the process. And so I, I don't think this is something that is ever done. I'm incredibly proud of the, the Denver team and that they continue to push on this. Um, but I think it shows that some of these strategies are working and those are good things that we can then share with other cities. I really agree with you on the, the kind of the regional examples uh, a little bit too and kind of where that shift happens. And I just think it's a huge testament to the effort you all put into this. But you know, I knew lots of families in Southwest Denver for, that for them, uh, the governance type of their school uh, wasn't even a, a big deal at all. Like they had one kid in a charter school, one kid in an innovation school, one kid in a district school. And a lot of the families in the city, like that's their life now, is that they're actually picking schools that are right for their kid. And they're advocates for great schools, not just charters or district or innovation schools. And I think that is a huge, again, testament to the effort you guys put into kind of, you know, reverse that gap in participation but also that like you're putting all schools on equal playing ground. Like that's also a huge testament to the Denverism. The exit component can include all the types of schools. It's not just, oh, pick all of our district schools and then you gotta go to another process for charter schools, another process for this other network. It's all in one, one book so parents can make the choice. Yeah, you're right. Choice is for families and it's about meeting them where they're at. And if you force a family to do one whole process for district schools and then multiple processes for charter schools, it's going to be really confusing for families and the families are you know, potentially going to walk away. That's what Denver was eight years ago. Denver had 64 different applications back in 2010. Wow. And parent organizations started the movement towards unified enrollment. They said, this is not fair for our families. We've got to make it easier. And in 2012, we went from 64 applications down to one. And one timeline, one application, you know, one assignment to schools. And that has been uh, an incredibly powerful force. Um, but you're right about charter versus district. Families don't walk into our family engagement centers saying, yeah. I want a charter school or I want a district school. Yeah. Parents don't know the difference. They want a good, safe school for their kids. Yeah. And they don't care which one it is. And I, I bet even if you ask most families, do you go to a charter or a district? I bet a huge percentage of them don't know. Yeah. I think they're happy and they want to keep going there. Mm -hmm. But I don't think parents know. And yeah. so I think that's something that... that you know, the, the ed wonks may talk about of charters versus district, yeah. it's quality. Parents mm -hmm. want quality. And so when we're doing our reporting, <clears throat> when we're aligning our choice systems, it should just be towards quality. And it shouldn't yeah. matter what the governance is of it as long as the school is doing right by all kids. Let's talk about voice for a second. You know, where is where are parents able to use their voice to get a school to be better? Where have, have you seen that happen? I mean, I feel like that was a part of our work at Family Engagement, the Family Engagement Office as well. But you know, it's not just it's not just about exits. It's about how do parents use voice to maybe, hey, the school's not doing as well as we want. We're going to say something, or we want something different here. Like, how, you know, tell us a little bit about how you've seen that play out. Yeah, one of the good examples was a middle school in the northwest portion of our city, and it, you'd have to go back probably about eight years ago, maybe six, eight years ago, and and what we saw was that the the opportunity cost of exit, meaning of your children not attending your neighborhood middle school, that opportunity cost was high. You were gonna to have to travel further across town. It was gonna be pretty inconvenient. The kids who you were with in, in for five or six years in elementary school were now gonna get split up and, and friendships are really important as you're in middle school. And so when that opportunity cost was high, when, when the ability to exit was high, uh, or the barriers to exit were high, then we saw families really reinvesting in the school. And, and the metric that we can see that play out through is called choice out rate. What are the percentage of kids that live in the neighborhood that don't go to that school? 
And this school was really high, it was, you know, whatever the number was, but it was north of 50%. And now we've just continued to see that drop, drop, and drop in this neighborhood. And now the neighborhood really feels like they own that school, which yeah. is really exciting. So the school had to respond to those families. Uh, I know there's a lot of stories about the school leader at the time, uh, meeting with the families of third and fourth graders um, to, to hear from them what they wanted in a school. Because they were down in like the 200s. They had like 200 kids spread across three grades. And now they're in the upper 600s, even though that neighborhood hasn't grown at all. It's been pretty flat as a neighborhood. But it just showed the response and the, the feedback that needed to happen from the school leader and the staff back to those families to say, what is it going to take for your kids to come here? And now you saw the school improve. Their scores are up. Mm -hmm. Families are much happier across the board. So that's an example where you do have these tensions of what does it look like for me not to go there versus... I do want to go there. Most families want to go to a good school in their neighborhood. It's easier with drop-off and pickup. It's yeah. easier when your neighbors go there, right? All of those things um, are, are factors. So, but you know, the, the interesting thing about voice, and this was kind of a little bit in both your world and my world at DPS, was it required a school leader willing to be able to be responsive to those parents and families and a system willing to be flexible about potential design shifts or program shifts. And not all of our, unfortunately, not all of our school leaders have that mindset, that open mindset, or the willingness to adjust systems. But yet, when you see it happen, it's a pretty incredible thing to watch that evolve, right? Yeah, and, and I think there's, you said evolve, I think that's been the shift over the last few years. When Denver was growing so fast, and when the choice system hadn't permeated as much, schools were often full no matter what. Yeah. And so if you were a principal, and you wanted 500 kids in your school, there was a few years ago, you probably had 500 kids in your school and you didn't have to be as responsive. You had, in essence, a little version of a monopoly. What we've seen now is now this, the growth has, has slowed down, uh, it really has stopped, and its choice has really picked up. Now it's creating some school leaders who have been in a system for a decade and have never really adapted to this kind of competitive landscape. Now they're realizing, gosh, if I don't listen to these families, they could choice out and they could tell their neighbors not to come here, and then my enrollment's gonna drop, in Denver, the money follows the kid. If you lose 10 kids, each student has roughly about $5,000 worth of budget. That's $50,000 you've got to cut from your budget. That could be a teacher. Yeah. And so just losing 10 students could be a staffing cut. Well, now your staff is going to start asking questions. Why are families leaving? What can we do to help about that? Why are we cutting positions? And so now you're bringing more people into that conversation. It's not just a few parents versus a principal. You're having it be a bigger group. Yeah. Um, well, we started talking about families and family engagement, Brian. Uh, you know, you've been in the front lines working with parents and families through uh, very tough conversations about uh, choice shifts and patterns in their in their communities, uh, things that they were excited about. Share a story that you feel like illustrates a, a, a challenge or an, op uh, an example that you think is really salient. One that really stuck with me on my way out was it was the final hour on the final day of the choice window this year. Um, so February 28th, it was like 3.30 and the window was going to close in an hour. And I had a dad who was an immigrant from Africa who had three kids in the system and he needed to fill out choice forms for all three of those students. Um, you know, language was a little bit of a barrier. Um, and we were able to have him work through the enrollment guide, the materials where we share information about different schools and the technology that was very new this year um, that prioritized the parent experience to make it as easy as possible. And I remember this dad was able to fill out the choice form for his three students in, I think it was 15 minutes. It was remarkable. Wow. And that was the embodiment of, of equity in terms of, can we have a family who may have some challenges engaging the system, but have them participate with all the same advantages as another student? And so that one really stuck with me that this was successful in what we were trying to accomplish. Um, I think somewhere that the family engagement was harder was at more of a macro level, which when we have conversations with communities about what new school do they want, right? One of the exciting problems when you add 20,000 new students is you need new schools for them to go to. And so you're trying to introduce new schools. And I think that could be hard because families are not used to this type of conversation. You know, most of the parents that are in DPS grew up like I did, where you live on a certain street and you went to a certain elementary, middle, and high school, yeah. and that was it. There was no choice or anything. It's a pretty big sea change in how people think about school. Yes. Yeah. And generationally, almost all of our parents never went through a choice environment. Yeah. Uh, and so we're constantly educating parents on what this looks like. But the last few times in Denver that we were trying to introduce new schools, there was this tension between a mystery box of, hey, do we want to create a new school from scratch or the known 
box of we have a school down the street or the next neighborhood over that is popular and good, and which one do we want? And I think one of the challenges was, was over and over again, families picking the known commodity. I get it. Because if you're a parent, you really want to introduce a mystery box, yeah. right? It, it's an exhausting experience for a parent to have to put that much time into. It could take two years of development. New schools are very likely bumpy. Um, and so, and if it's a middle school, your child's only there for three years anyway. Yeah. So that you, you may miss the entire window that your child was there. And so I think it's a challenge that we have in, in terms of trying to differentiate the new schools that are opening versus replicating the schools that exist the next neighborhood over. And why is this a risk? Well, imagine you have a new office building and they want to put a coffee shop on the first floor. If there's a Starbucks across the street, if people say, well, I like Starbucks, we'll go with that. That's how you end up with Starbucks across the street from each other mm -hmm. and not having an independent one across the street from it. So when we think about you know, having the program variety in a given larger community, like an art school and a STEM school and a, a dual language school and a Montessori school, you've got to be more thoughtful about how to engage the community to think of the, the, the collective whole on the portfolio. Well, one of my uh, professors in graduate school, he, had this, he was like a public sector scholar guy, whatever, and he had this quote that I always loved, that sometimes you have to call a, a new public into existence, and that that was a, a part of public leadership and a part of a dynamic public space. And I think that, again, you, know, you talk about a sea change about parents never going through a choice process. I think that people have very static views of public sector work. Hey, CU has always been CU. There's always been CSU. This park has always been here. This hospital, I think, although that's kind of a quasi-private public thing, this school district has always been here. But, but the reality is that these things have always been shifting. They've always been changing. Sometimes with time horizons beyond our lifetimes or when the, we, the, wind, the small window we were living in a community, but you know, you were in the business of calling new publics into existence uh, through the planning process, through the choice process. So, you know, what does uh, engaging in a dynamic process like this with families and communities and, and, and systems of choice and, and boundaries and everything, what does it do to old notions of community and how does it create potential new notions of community? Yeah, I think the, one of the first things is you're, you're battling the nostalgia of one house, one school, yeah. which again, most of the parents went through. And our neighborhood has always gone to that school and we should always go to that school. And, um, and, and you're right, so you're trying to, to, to reduce the anchoring of one house, one school. Um, because otherwise you're just gonna be stuck in the status quo for which, a long time. Which, which we should note for people like, people don't fear change, they often fear loss. Yeah. And that's a real stable part of some people's life um, even if that school has not served them super well, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 so as we introduced new schools and as we changed the boundary lines on certain schools, parents perceived it as a potential loss. Well, yeah. if you introduce this other school, yeah. I don't want to go there anyway, but mm -hmm. I'm worried you're gonna hurt my other school, therefore you shouldn't introduce that. Mm -hmm. And so it was it was challenging having some of those conversations because you know people came to it from a place of loss and of fear. I think where can this happen well? This can happen well when you're trying to lift all boats in a given area. We closed the middle school that um, was in a certain neighborhood where uh, it was 81% of families in that neighborhood didn't go to that school. Mm -hmm. It was a red school. Um, it had very low enrollment. It, it had a lot so, going against so it. So most people that were even there weren't going to that school. Yeah, yeah, yeah that 81% were leaving it anyway yeah. and driving multiple miles because middle school, there aren't yeah. as many middle schools. And, and so we then replaced it with the top middle school in the city. We moved it from the, the neighboring you know, community into there and we grew it, like we quadrupled the size of it from, uh, you know, from 200 kids and it's actually now about 1,400 kids. So it's like a seven X increase in size. But families still come to it from you know, some negative lenses of it's not our neighborhood school, it's you know, somebody else's or you know, it's, it's very segregated or whatever. And, and so I think it's, it's challenging that on the upside, we are trying to give more advocacy to more families now. We are trying to, to take a neighborhood that had more social capital and less social capital and put it together so they would have collectively more capital than was there before. 
And so there are opportunities to do that well, but you have to be really careful with it mm-hmm. because the risk is that you can create segregation. You could basically create a version of like educational gentrification where you move a certain school into a neighborhood and if a lot of families from a Fall neighborhood in. come with it, yeah. you know, do you crowd out the families that were there? You know, and then the other one is you've got to make sure that the school leader is listening to all voices mm-hmm. and not just the voices of, of some of the families who are going to be louder. Yeah. And so there are potential risks, um, but I think there are benefits of you know, kind of de-anchoring one home, one school. You're giving families more of a voice in the process and creating new layers of community that could be centered around something like the arts or a dual language yeah. that didn't exist before because everybody was just anchored to only their local neighborhood school. And that has huge ripple effects in the whole community. If you have, you're creating a new space for folks. Um, you're also one of the things that you know I feel like was also a huge part of the Denver process was decoupling the notion between school and facility. That you know a, a, the facility is a building, and we can put whatever program that we want there. And for a lot of parents, though, those things are fused together. So it was about also educating parents. I think a lot of times in your work is like, oh, like we can actually put a new thing here. And it can be something else. It'll be a new type of school at this school. And that, I think, was also probably, that's, that's kind of blows people's minds sometimes, actually. It, it was, that was very challenging, where you essentially have, what, 150 buildings and 200 schools in those. But you're right, there, there's an element of moving them around in a logical way that, hey, this type of school appeals to more kids in this neighborhood, yeah. or this school's too big for this building or too small for this building. I think families anchored you know, that school, that building, and my home, like that kind of triangle yeah. relationship, and you had a decouple that and that was really hard when you know you don't want to treat them like monopoly pieces where you're moving things all the time mm-hmm. stability is very important to a family especially for like an elementary school where we know walkability is a factor and your kids could be there for you know certainly six years per kid but you could have two three kids i mean you could be a parent at that school for a decade and if you were to keep moving it around I and mean, that's unfair to a family yeah. but to go to the other extreme of we will never move anything and everything will stay as it is forever. You're just not adapting in a yes, way that a yeah. city is adapting, right? The city is changing. And so if you don't change with it, you're going to be left behind and running a really inefficient system of schools. That's right. Because the reality is that our cities are have always been changing. They always will be changing. The question is how are our public systems going to respond to it? Yeah. And I think that's like, that's a, oh man, that's a key part of your work. So let's, let's kind of pivot to the open system frame now. How does choice create open systems? How does choice build uh, the capacity of system for an open system? Uh, and how does it create potentially create closed systems uh, for families and, and parents and communities? Yeah, so it's about the open system and, and, and how do we get families more authentically involved in the school district? You know, as we said a little while ago, a child's education is one of the most important things that a parent can do for them to help their future outcomes. And if a parent, all they can do is voice their concern, they're not really an actor in that. And by having choice and letting parents pick from different schools, and now they're an actor in the most important thing they do for their child. And as a parent, like I feel that as well. Uh, And so the open system of letting them act, you know, with the school district for their child, I think is incredibly important. I remember seeing a graphic about, you know, the district strategy and nowhere on it was a parent. It was all about what people in central office were going to do. And I remember kind of, you know, drawing a carrot in there and saying, like, where is the parent? Like, where is choice? Parent is, parents are a huge actor in the system. And so, you know, that's a place where I think it is really, really powerful that they, you know, now have a very tangible action in the system that forces the district um, to respond to their needs. Yeah. Now, where can this be a challenge? Uh, this could be a challenge when you start to fall away from equity, where um, the only people that are able to you know, act, you know, kind of like with the exit of mm-hmm. like being able to act out of a school, if it's still tied up in their capital, mm-hmm. whether it's their financial capital or their social capital. And so that's a risk of like creating a more closed system where you, you know, you're kind of checking the box and saying, hey, we have school choice. Therefore, if you're unhappy, pick another school. But if you're not giving them the tools to do it, then you're not that much better than we were a few decades ago of yeah. private schools in the real estate market. And so, you know, what are those types of things? Again, that's that's having some options of transportation, making it easy for families to learn about different schools, having those community connections to teach them about what might be right for their kid, factoring in housing instability, 
reducing all the testing requirements so that the only, you know, quote unquote, good schools are the ones that you have to test into. You've got to have these different types of, of supports in place so that it is a true open system and that you're not just kind of closing it off to another set of families again. I really like that. It's a uh and it's like the you with potentially with choice if executed really poorly is you have an illusion of openness and you actually have closed doors for parents and families to kind of run into and they're not able to access what they need to be able to access and I think that there's probably examples out there in our national conversation I just do not believe Denver is one of them where that's happening for parents and families where the choice system is actually just another way of exacerbating the inequities in the system and actually it's closing versus opening and so it's like it behooves us. We have to build guardrails and systems like you were saying, transportation, all these things to make it actually happen. Yeah. And, and I think it's it's being clear at the start of why why do you exist? It is not choice for choice's sake. It is yeah. choice to get kids into quality schools that are the right fit for them. And if you have that North Star and you are clear on it, then you can have your community conversations with board members, you know, community leaders and parents that what are the actions we need to take in order to you know, head towards this North Star. And I think I think Denver has been doing that well. I think a few other cities are doing it well uh, also. But you can read about other cities where parents refuse to give up their testing schools because yeah. they know their kid is going to test well yes. and they got the tutors. And that's hard to, to read about because I, I don't know, I think their North Star might be more aligned with privilege than it is with equity. Yeah. And that that's something that, you know, every community is going to be different. But I, you know, I worry that people are masking their actions and voices under something that that might be inauthentic. Yeah, and I think that uh, I love that example. That's a that's a really important and very recent national example. And I think people see that and they associate it across all the landscapes. And I think that's an important aspect of like understanding what's happened here is very different or some other cities that have done this really well. <clears throat> so let's talk about um, uh, the next stage the next set of the, what's next for choice systems in Denver and places that are just getting started. You know, you now have left Denver after seven years of leading this incredible opportunity to open schools and family, schools for families all over the, uh, all over our city. Now you have an opportunity, you're in your kind of new stage of your work, you're visiting some of these other cities, you're seeing what's, what's happening next. You know, what's the next stage of this work, not only for Denver, but other cities in the country? And I uh, would love just to hear kind of some of your ruminations on what's, what's happening next. Yeah, you know, I, I feel like the intersection between enrollment and a system of schools, meaning like not just neighborhood schools, but neighborhood schools plus magnets, plus things like that. I feel like it's a microcosm of the squabbling that happens in Congress right now, yeah. where we do agree on certain things, but it is way more convenient to focus on what we don't agree on and try to blow things up. Uh, and that, that doesn't make sense. I think we have made really good progress in a bunch of places, um, and we should be learning about how to make that better. Um, if we just blow something up, we're just going to give parents power back to the affluent parents. Mm -hmm. And maybe some parents are okay with that. Um, but we need to know that if you go from one application to 60 applications and you get rid of some of these other, you know, market considerations about, you know, helping, you know, the language supports and supports for families experiencing housing instability, you know, you're just taking huge steps backwards. There, that does not take you forward. Um, and so one thing I'm excited about in talking with other cities is, you know, their passion for the space, the passion of their parents, their community groups, some of their elected officials for improving these outcomes for students and not conflating giving families an action with some of the other things they don't agree with, like, you know, charter schools or magnet schools or things like that. I think it's so easy to conflate. Um, and so I think when I think about going forward, I think about helping folks set a North Star for why we want to go do this. And, you know, I hope often that would end up being quality schools for all kids. Um, and acknowledging that if a kid goes to a school that they're more interested in, whether it's because of the subject matter or because all of their friends go there or um, because it's across the street, it could be any of those dimensions, that the child that goes to that school will more likely be more successful than if they go to a school where they walk in the door every morning miserable. Um, and I, I think we have a good opportunity here to share lessons from around the country. I think in education, there's this nice thing that across cities, there really is no competition, right? We all want each other to do better. Um, and so how can we do a better job about sharing lessons? It's something I'm excited about. Um, 
you know, my new world of, of supporting other cities is, you know, if, if something is going great in Memphis with a parent organization, let's figure out a way to share that with Camden. Mm -hmm. If we're doing really good language supports in a certain city, let's find a way to do that in another city. Um, and, and so, you know, we're not competitors in this space. And so I think we have a good opportunity to share lessons, whether it's a policy or a technology lesson or a parent engagement lesson, um, and to, you know, help share those across cities um, to make everybody better. Because I think at the end of the day, if, if we can make this fair and easy, if we can just keep those two words at the forefront, fair and easy for our families, and align our decisions underneath that, then I think we're going to improve outcomes for kids in this space. And that's, that's my hope. So, you know, we have this big debate in Denver right now. You know, we've had choice for, how long have we had choice? About seven years. About seven years. We've had unified, unified choice in Denver. But I feel like there is this, uh, I think it's a small minority of folks who say, let's end it. So let's actually play this scenario. I actually like doing this sometimes because we should never be above this in public policy and thinking about the consequences. So let's say it. Like tomorrow, a new superintendent came into DPS and said, no more choice. Uh, we're going back to where it was. What would immediately change for parents and families in the system? You know, Colorado is a choice state, which means that you can live in Denver and attend a neighboring district um, tuition free. You may have to get your child there, but um, you can do that. And so to pretend we, we can just go back to this you know, pure monopoly, it can't happen anyway because families can choose across lines. Um, if I had to guess if a person, a new suit came in, um, we would probably go back to m multiple applications again, right? They, they would kick the charters out. Um, we've got a whole bunch of charter networks. They're now going to start running their own lotteries. And that's like 30, 40% of our secondary schools? Yeah, about, yeah, 40% of secondary schools, 25% of all K-12 students. So now you imagine a parent could potentially, in a neighborhood that has district schools, magnet schools, and charter schools, a parent of a fifth grader could fill out like six different applications. Wow. And you're going to lose all the supports that help make it easier for families. So if you're a community engagement organization, how are you you're supposed to walk down the street with six different applications and then ask them which one they want? You're going to have six different mobile applications. It, it's wildly inefficient for families. Um, it, it, from a cost perspective, it costs way more money. And I think one of the other tensions, you never know where the kid's going to go to school next year. So imagine, you know, for some college students that apply to 10 colleges, they get into all of them. They could be walking around in May with 10 acceptances. Nine of those colleges don't know where the kid is coming this fall. And so they're going to end up holding seats for kids that don't show up or they don't let enough kids in. It's a very inefficient market. And so I think moving away from where we are today, we just take huge steps back. I think there's always ways that we can keep improving, um, but the rhetoric on blow it up and let's go back to the old way, I think is a, a huge drop off from where we are today. Oh, that's super helpful. So final question, what has been the best vacation you've ever taken in your life and why? I think I'm obligated to say my honeymoon. Oh right? yeah, you gotta say that. So I think I'm obligated to say that. Um, so my wife and I went to Europe for a few weeks after we got married, and uh, we went to Greece and Italy, and... Um, that sounds like a pretty, that sounds like a, be a beautiful place to go. Though. It probably, yeah, yeah. That, yeah, that's probably better than like the weekend in Evergreen, <laughs> you know, or some <laughs> suburb of Denver where we went. Um, so yeah, I'll probably go with the honeymoon, and just this way, if she listens to this, I'm just covered on that front. Greece and Italy, lots of good history there. Yeah, lots of good food, yeah. lots of good um, drinks, lots of good history. Um, so, it was, and we didn't have kids back then, so it was it was you know, we could sleep. Yeah. Like you know, now we go on vacation and we're still up at six in the morning no matter what. It's hard to sleep in. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Brian. Thanks.